0: The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode. You will often have seen David wearing a t-shirt carrying the name John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The college was the venue for his only press conference ahead of the sell-out concert at Madison Square Garden in March 1972. Pat Rivalgi was the editor of the literary magazine at the college. She was the driving force behind the press conference and worked closely with David's publicists and record company representatives, especially those at RCA, to draw attention to David to an older audience as he pursued his solo career. In a newspaper article in 1974, Pat observed, no artist can go wrong when his direction comes from his own audience, because the artist and audience are all that really does matter. After graduation, Pat worked as a publicist at Levinson Associates in New York, where her clients included Sean Cassidy and his record producer, Michael Lloyd. After working in public relations, Pat received her master's degree in international relations from New York University and spent the next 30 years as a professional staff member in the U.S. House of Representatives and an intelligence officer with several agencies within the U.S. government. In our conversation, she recalls how, as an ambitious student at John Jay College, she interviewed and met David and shares with us the real story behind that T-shirt. Hello, Pat. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you,
0: Louise. Great to be here.
1: Let's start by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and your connection with David through the John Jay College.
0: Well, in 1971, I was a college student at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, which is part of the City University of New York, which has about a dozen colleges associated with it and 25 campuses. And I was the editor, the music editor for the student newspaper at John Jay, also the editor of the literary magazine, and I had a radio show. And so music was really my thing. And I was kind of a top 40 junkie. So I was very aware um, of who David was. I'd watched The Partridge Family. Some of the songs were just, the show was a little silly, but some of the songs were really lovely. Um, And David's voice was really lovely. And I started to read about him and saw that he was about to do his first solo album away from The Partridge Family, that he wanted to have more of an identity as David Cassidy. So I reached out to his publicist and said, and requested an interview that I would run in the literary magazine. And I said, I think this would be an opportunity to reach out to an older audience. They were, you know, very excited about that. In the early 70s, the college crowd was really where the music industry um, was targeting and marketing themselves. So they did arrange a phone interview for me with David, and we spent some time on the phone. He was, he was tired. I'm not sure he you know, knew exactly what the what the interview was about. But we ran the we ran the piece in the literary magazine, quite a nice spread on David, with the interview. And some of my fellow college students thought I was a little weird, um, of all people, David Cassidy. But I then invited his publicist down to the radio station when the Cherish album actually did come out, and we played parts of the album. We talked a bit about David, and he was preparing to come into New York to play Madison Square Garden. So came up with this idea. I said, well, I can get some of the college newspapers, some of the college radio stations to come down to the college if we can hold a press conference here. You get David here, I will supply the college press. It'll be his opportunity to reach this older crowd. And that's exactly what we did um, on March 10th. Um, 1972, David came to John Jay College of Criminal Justice. It was quite an exciting event. It went very well. There was a mixture of some professional press, the college press, some young fans who I assume his, uh, his publicist invited, and it went, it went very well. And at the time, we handed him a couple of college t-shirts from John Jay, and the next day I went to the concert, and it was, it was quite an event. So that was my first time um, meeting David. And um, we subsequently did an interview for the magazine with Elton John. I had done a lot of interviews with um, a lot of different artists for the student newspaper. Um, So I got to see David again that August when he was playing New Jersey, the Garden State Art Center and spent a little time with him backstage sharing a glass of champagne and he was strumming the guitar. We talked a little. And then I had to leave because he had to meet and greet a lot of other notables from the area. And I went back to the hotel um, and sat down for lunch with uh, Kim Carnes and Dave Ellingson and introduced myself, told them a bit about what had happened at John Jay College. And Dave said, oh, are you the one who got David the sweatshirts?" I said, yeah. And he said, well, can you send us some if I give you our address? And I said, Absolutely. So we did that. So that's the story of The Sweatshirts, which comes into play a couple of years later. Um, And this was also the time when David was doing the Rolling Stone interview. So it it was a campaign to kind of help fulfill David's wish to branch out beyond the Partridge family. And then the Rolling Stone interview came out, all hell broke loose. I always thought the commotion was, you know, just exaggerated, I didn't see what was so terrible about it. I always thought it was kind of a kind of a good thing that happened. Um, and then I reached out and they reached out to me, but I became aware of some of his couple of his fan clubs um, that were very active in trying to put together their own fanzine or their own newsletter, um, writing about David, reviewing some of his albums, more of an adult approach. And I got involved with some of them, which kept me in touch with his publicists. And by 1974, he was getting ready to do his world tour. And we had put out a number of newsletters um, questioning the wisdom of, of doing that as opposed to trying to gear David towards smaller clubs and all of that. And we had we had no idea if, if any of this was getting to him. This was the, the biggest frustration. You know, you're sending it to a publicist's office, you're sending it to the manager's office, and we were just anxious to know if David was aware of any of this. And finally, shortly before he left for, for the tour, um, I was on the phone with him again before he left. And what's funny about it is after the conversation, I excitedly wrote to my friends in England about it. And 46 years later, my friend Sue from England came to New York and she had a copy of the letter, no way. Which, which was amazing because there was, so many, there was so much that was part of the conversation I had forgotten about it. I, I, I got on the phone, David gets on the phone, and the first thing I say is, where the hell have you been? and he said I've been all over and we we talked and it was the first time really that I thought we talked really comfortably and he was very aware of what was going on the most important thing that came out of it was he said I see everything I read everything and I was basically saying don't go you know come to New York play some clubs don't do this and he said no um I'm going to go to Hawaii. And that's exactly what he did after the tour. And I think he had a plan even before the tragic incident that this was going to be the end of touring for him for a while. He was going to take a break and he was going to go to Hawaii. That He had that in his mind before he left. That's exactly what happened. But the exciting thing was I was opening up magazines and some pictures from of David on that tour and he's wearing the John Jay College shirt all over and this is two years later after we gave it to him Uh, so I was very excited I was very excited to see him uh, wearing that in in London especially as it was very shortly after we we had that conversation I I think they I don't want (laughs) to I just think they really liked the shirts quite frankly but it was a wonderful thing just happens to be where I was in school at the time
1: did you feel it was important for him to have an older audience?
0: We really did because what I saw in the teen magazines just, you know, was so unappealing. Didn't like it. You knew, especially after the Rolling Stone article came out, you knew he was he was unhappy. Um, you knew he wanted to reach more than just that teen crowd. Um, So, yeah, we really did think it was important. I'm not sure we made, you know, much of a a difference. I think his audience grew up with him, but I think we reached some. I think we reached some. I I can tell you that at least among the college crowd that I was with, um, especially since he actually showed up, you know, there were no jokes. There was no ridicule. There was no, you know, they thought it was pretty cool that he actually showed up and talk to them.
1: How, how difficult was it for you to convince his publicists that he should come to John Jay College and hold what turned out to be his only press conference ahead of Madison Square Garden?
0: Well, I did a lot of schmoozing. Let's put it this way. I invited her. Um, he had a wonderful publicist in New York by the name of Rena Millman over at Salters and Roskin. And I invited her down to my radio show when Cherish came out. And we did an interview on the radio show about David. I got her, she adored David. And we talked a lot about what he was trying to achieve and how proud he was of the record, as he should be, it's a wonderful record. So I think she did a lot to promote the idea. Um, I think they also knew that It was something that David might be excited about. It provided them with a venue where they could invite all the press they were interested in. I did all the work. You have to remember in those days, there was no social media, there was no internet. So I did all the invitations through the mail to all the different colleges and they showed up. And I wish I still had a cassette of that press conference. Anybody out there, if anyone among you listeners has a copy of that John Jay College press conference, the audio to it, I would love it. Um, I don't remember too much about it. I do know he got questioned. Someone from our college newspaper said, well, I read in an interview that you don't care about Vietnam, et cetera. And, and David, for whatever reason, possessed him. He goes, well, I don't care about Vietnam. And, and of course that wasn't true. He was as concerned as anyone being of the age when there was the draft lottery and all of that. So I I can understand his reasons for not wanting to be political. But I think he was more nervous than anything about approaching this crowd um, because I think he was concerned about what they thought of him knowing he had this image as a teen adult. We knew the other side of David. They didn't necessarily... um, This
1: was at a time when he was demanding more artistic control.
0: That was a big issue. That was... You know, not only getting away from um, the teen idol issue, doing it in a way that wouldn't offend his teen fans. You know, he was so under control with the TV show and he was so under control with the records, especially the Partridge Family records, in terms of this is what you're going to sing. You know, there's that famous story of the argument over, or doesn't somebody want to be wanted, the talking bit that he really argued that he didn't want to do. So, yeah, that was, that was all wrapped into more artistic freedom, playing smaller venues, letting David Cassidy be David Cassidy. And I never bought into the sense that, well, his fans, you know, don't want him to be anything other than Keith Partridge. I, I think they knew who David was. I knew the distinction that they drew between Keith Partridge, who was, you know, kind of a lame character, and, and David. And I think it was really David they fell in love with and and the voice. If you watch the Partridge family, the musical numbers, I think, especially in the last seasons are where David really shines and comes through. And they knew that that was David and that wasn't Keith. They fell in love with David, not Keith Partridge.
1: As an example over here, we didn't get the Partridge family until September, 1971. Well, by that time, all our teenage magazines were full of pictures of David. And because we didn't have the television series, we only related him to himself. We didn't have a character to put a badge on him and go, this is Keith Partridge. It was always David Cassidy.
0: And the music, and some of those, Russ Ferrell and Jerry and Paul Anker and Tony Romeo were just wonderful songwriters for that that genre. It was was certainly, I think, above anything the Osmonds were doing or some of the other, you know, manufactured groups like the Archie's or some of the other what they were calling bubblegum music at the time. I think this had more of a sophistication. Some of the numbers more than others.
1: We were saying earlier on about him needing, or in the view of yourself and your fellow students and the other fan clubs you were referring to, That David should have had a more mature audience, it bothered a lot of lot of fans over in the states that he wasn't playing smaller venues. And you had some thoughts on that, didn't you?
0: Yeah, it became I think it became obscene. Um, I think that again, ever since the Beatles played Shea Stadium in New York and were playing. Stadium and, and then, you know, they, they did two tours like that, and then they, they gave it up because it was just crazy. You, it, there was no creative satisfaction out of playing a stadium like that. You couldn't hear yourself think, no less make music. But I think it was kind of a, you know, a, a badge of superstardom that you were going to be able to fill, you know, Wembley, Manchester, White City, you know, going to Japan, going to Australia, filling these stadiums. And of course the stadiums in the UK, unlike say Shea Stadium or the baseball stadiums in the States where you're very far away from the stage, you know, you have an assigned seat, you don't, you're not anywhere near the stage. At these football stadiums in the UK, you know, all these girls were going to be, you know, tens of thousands were going to be pushing up front to get close and i think by the last he had done it in 73 but i think by the last tour i think there was a sense that this might be his last tour i think the crush the pandemonium um just was something that maybe they didn't expect i have no answer for why why that happened we were certainly aware of it i mean you can't become any clearer than saying don't go you know and you're telling this huge superstar about to embark on his most successful tour, don't go.
1: You actually um, did that to him, didn't you?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was that, that was the gist of the conversation. And in fact, the, the, the fan group that I was working with at the time were some older folks. They called themselves the David Cassidy Individuality Movement. And of course, the, the literary magazine where I ran his interview was called The Individualist. So there was this sense of David being able to break out and have his own identity, and that he was an individual, not just part of this machine. But that came with the, you know, being part of the machine came with part of the territory. He signed contracts, he, you know, did the show, and then you lose control after that. If the teen magazines are going to, going to pick you up and the teen magazines, you know, came out and said, he was our biggest draw, he was our biggest seller. We never had a teen idol this huge. Or so successful. So they were just going to keep going on and on and on and on. And anytime David tried to break out of that, they would portray it as an insult to his fans. They 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 were terrible. They they knew how to manipulate the the image. That they were the only source of information on David, truly, at the time. There was no Facebook, Twitter where he could talk directly to his audience. The only information you got on David was through Tiger Beaten 16 magazine and most of that was made up in manufacturing.
1: To an innocent you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old, you're going to absorb all that information.
0: I mean, I I was that age during the Beatles, so that was, that was my go- those fan magazines. I mean, I had a familiarity with them and understood it because I had been a 12, 13 year old fan reading those magazines. And I think when David came along, it just became a natural for me to go into magazine and and pick it up and start reading.
1: I remember reading an article you'd you'd written uh, where you once described David as a piece of raw steak that a lot of people have sunk their teeth into and keep tugging at. Oh, I was good. (laughs) Did I write
0: that? You did. I, I often wonder why I didn't stick with a career in journalism, publicly, <laughs> or, or writing. I also wrote something saying, "When you meet David, he bleeds all over you," um, because you you just get this sense of unhappiness in him, in his trying to um, struggle out. But it was a piece of it definitely was a piece of steak that people wanted to sink their their teeth into. People were making a lot of money. And it's one of the reasons he started going on stage to begin with, because he wasn't making enough money off of doing the TV show. And he was making thousands of dollars with concerts in, in show business and like in politics. I think kind of what's always recommended when you have a situation like that is you go away for a while and then come back. Think about what you want to do, reinvent yourself and then come back. I don't think after 74, um, especially after the situation at at White City Stadium, that he was going to be able to reinvent himself right away. But he did, I mean, he did come back, he did make good records, he did keep performing. I was surprised to see that he did several Royal Albert Hall concerts, he did smaller. he did eventually start doing smaller venues. Um, By this, you know, by this time I had lost track of what David was doing, although um, the story doesn't end in 74 all the way, because after graduation, I was hired by the public relations company um, who had handled David after he was with Salters and Roskin Levinson Associates. And so I became a publicist at Levinson Associates, doing publicity in an official capacity, and I was working with um, Sean Cassidy's record producer, who had also produced for David Uh, his record if i didn't care which i think was a hit in
1: Mm -hmm.
0: UK, not so much in the states and the next thing i knew sean cassidy became a client and sean was coming to play madison square garden and i spent some time with him actually spent more time with him than i i did in person with david and um it was deja vu all over again we threw the press conference for him, backstage at Madison Square Garden, and he played Madison Square Garden, and was pandemonium. And I remember hearing a fan go, "This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience." And I said, "No, it's not." <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that was that was wonderful. That was wonderful to um, to sit down with Sean and actually tell him about all the things we did with David. The first thing I said to Sean Cassidy when I met him was, "How's David?" And he was just a delightful, charming, everything much more in stride than David did in the sense that having seen David go through it, Sean's approach was, yeah, I know what this is all going to be about. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, just going to let it happen, going to do it for a while and then move on to, to something else. And I think psychologically, emotionally, Sean was more mature to do that. David internalized things, a lot more, and I think when the career, ironically, when the career started to transition and taper off, David might have actually felt like a failure or a husband and was struggling to recapture, you know, get that um, thunder in a bottle or whatever you might want to call it again. And, and it doesn't always happen twice, but he had a marvel. He had a marvelous career um, in the eighties and the nineties. And David did Broadway. He did. Vegas. He continued to make records, I think, last kiss. He he was a success in the UK. He had a lot of peaks and valleys. Mostly the peaks were when he was working and felt fulfilled, but when that would come to an end, I think he would fall into a slump. None of us knew David well enough to be able to diagnose everything that was going on, but it probably was just, um, you know, too difficult. We'll all bear that heartbreak with him as people who loved him those of us who who cared about him and loved him and had hoped to get a lot more from him.
1: Let's step back to a happier moment, the night when you were waiting for him to ring you for the first interview you were doing for your college magazine. Talk us through that evening, what you were doing and what happened the moment the phone rang. Yeah? I was a nervous wreck. While I was
0: still living at home, there was one landline on the kitchen wall I stretched the phone wire to close myself into the bathroom, I think it was which was the <laughs> that was on the side of the kitchen, and closed myself in there, hoping no one would come knocking on the door or you know knowing what I was doing. I think I might have told my mom that I was going to be doing this interview um, because it went fine without in, it went fine without without interruption and here i here I am you know I think it was it was evening our time in New York I'm in Brooklyn, New York, and waiting for the phone to ring. I had a little cassette player where I was going to hope to capture his comments, and the phone rang, and I think he said, is this Patricia? And I said, yeah, he said, it's David. And we began talking from there, and we talked about the show. What I remember from it is, and it's, it's on in the, in the magazine we talked about, which was a big trend at the time, to doing sitcoms in front of a live audience to give the show a little more authenticity. And David said you couldn't do that because you had really young kids on the show um, and sort of like that. It, you know, it was it was a very professional kind of matter-of-fact kind of interview by um, someone who was nervous and someone who was very tired. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I I think my sense that this was an adult that I was talking to clearly came across. I think I said, oh, it's coming back. I think I said something. I said something like, well, I hope hope the questions or something. And he said, well, let me be the, you know, I'll be the judge of that. Something like that. So David was very adult, very on point, um, who wasn't fooling around, wasn't childish Um, had no tinge of, I'm the superstar talking to you. This was, I think, an adult conversation. I tried to um, make the conversation as interesting as possible for David so that he would understand what it was we were trying to do and why you're talking to a college media. And how much they filled him in on that part of it at that time, I'm not sure. I think he might have just, you know, he was doing interviews every day, every break that he had on the set. And it, and it, you know, it might've been, well, here's another interview. I think it was perhaps a little, and he might've thought, okay, this is, this is the anomaly. Um, and I think it might've been a little later <clears throat> that it was explained to him, this is a campaign to bring you to the attention of an older audience. You know, they're, they're interested in having you down at the college for the press conference. And by that time, I think he understood. It might have been three three or four pages, and we ran photos of David in concert. Um, so I think the spread look in the magazine looked really, really nice.
1: It did, and it was very well-written, considering that this was your very first interview with a superstar.
0: Went, Thank you, and I was just hoping it would be well-received on campus. Because the yeah. Georgia College of Criminal Justice were folks who were going to go into law enforcement. These were future police officers, corrections officers, and a lot of them were adults who were there part time. A lot of them were coming into major in criminal justice. Um, so this was not the Berkeley crowd or the University of Southern California crowd. These were you trying to get a cop to write poetry. That's what this was, that's what this was about. So you're not even putting David in your more conventional campus. This is in the folks who are going to look at this were probably half new college-age students and others who are adults who are going back to school to receive a degree. I think making a solo album um, was more, let's capitalize on his starting more than, oh, let's give him an opportunity to express himself. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now I, I was thinking of the Dreams album.
0: Oh, the Dreams
1: album, because that was such a, a breakaway from what he'd done before. It had more of his, more of his identity stamped on it. It
0: did, and it was more personal. He became very close with you know Tony Romeo, who wrote "Sing Me" as a biographical song. So some of the songwriters were the same. I don't think the, and it was it's a lovely album. I don't think artistically the cre- the creative breakout came until he did the higher climb and when he started working with west coast well-known west coast singer-songwriters when he when Bruce Johnson began producing him and he got away from West Farrell and West Farrell was very successful and had written <laughs> wonderful songs in the 60s. not to take anything away from West Farrell and and the production quality and all of it the albums he did with David are very good. But David was not going to be able to forge his own path musically until he broke away from that.
1: Now you've worked with many artists when you were working as a publicist yourself in in New York. Are you aware of anyone on the scale of David who had the capacity to move people and touch people the way he did?
0: Oh, no one came near David in in that capacity. You know, there were certainly we had worked with Fleetwood Mac, um, the Bee Gees, there were certainly very, very successful acts that we worked with. But no one on no no one on that scale, I think, who reached the kind of audience that he did. I mean they sold they all sold a lot of wreckage, they all had very, very devoted fans, but in terms of the pure love, I can't think of anyone with the exception of Elvis who came anywhere near having that kind of love and loyalty from a, a crowd. And it's just so sad. And David even talked about it. Well, I didn't want to, you know, talked about it in the early eighties. Well, I just, I could see myself becoming Elvis and I just had it. and it's like so sad because to a certain extent, that's what happened. We talked a little bit about the culture that was around him. Um, the addictive culture, he, he he marched through the 80s, he marched through the 90s, he marched through the early 2000s, um, doing extraordinary things and, and being creatively happy. I did when I, I I eventually got my master's degree in international relations and moved and to Washington DC for a career in government. And David came to play Washington DC In the 1990s, I went to see him. It was a great show in a club. He had an adult audience. And I just remember thinking, this is all we ever wished for you. You know, it's 20 years later, but you're doing it. And he clearly was, it was just a polished, professional, wonderful show. He did some poetry songs, he did songs from his solo album. Uh, Danny Bonaduce was on tour with him, was the opening act. He was very funny, very good. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful show. And as I say, it's just thinking, this is all we ever wanted for you.
1: Because he'd always, as you said earlier on, he'd always placed great value on his individuality, making it clear in so many interviews, you know, that he'd been robbed of it. Did you feel you were seeing the essence of David at last?
0: Oh, for sure. I think he had total control over the over the show. And he had total artistic control, something he didn't have before. This was his band. This is what they were going to put together. And as I say, the way it worked was, those were fans who had been with him since the early '70s. They grew up with him. They became his adult audience by growing simply by growing up with him. That was true of you know Beatles fans. It was true of Elvis fans. If you have the goods, where you have the longevity, the artistic stamina, the artistic goods, where you, you can be around 10, 20 years later, your fans will be there for you and they will be your adult mature audience. And they grew up with him and they loved him just as much and they were just thrilled to have the opportunity to see him. So that was a, that was a happy moment.
1: There was another happy moment, wasn't there? Because you told me that you've always found him so charming. Can you share with us your special moment after the press conference, which is a perfect example of how much of a gentleman and a gentleman David was? We
0: were all heading toward the elevator, and they were moving kind of quickly, and they get into the elevator, which is kind of packed, and I'm about to be, you know, a lot of the other students, by this point, everybody kind of was like wanting to be around him, and, and people were writing down, so it was a packed elevator. He only came with two, three other people. But the elevator was packed and I was about to be closed out of it and I get yanked in. And then the next thing I know, I'm standing next to David and it all started to come back to me because the first thing he did was just running down, looking straight ahead. And he just, he put his elbow on my shoulder and I leaned my head against the shoulder and the next thing he did was, you know, he put his arm around me, I put my arm around his waist, and that's how we rode down the rest of the way to the, to the lobby. And then like Cinderella at midnight, he was, he was gone, got swept into the, the limousine, and I had, you know, went back up, and my fellow students were, were cheering me that it had actually come off and had done well, and I was interviewed. Standing there waiting to talk to me was Jan Hotenfeld who was the music editor at the New York Post, the late great Jan Hotenfeld. Talked to him about it, you know, he asked how old I was and how did this all happen and he wrote up a very nice little article in the New York Post the next day.
1: Although David didn't say anything to you, you felt that was his way of saying, I know you've organized this, thank you very much for what... I think when he
0: put his elbow on my shoulder he, that was his, he was saying, thank you. Yeah, that, that was, I know this was you and thank you. And I had met him down in the lobby when he arrived and his publicist inter, you know, introduced me. And so he, he kind of knew that. And there's a photo of me sitting with David at the press conference through the whole thing. So he, you know, he knew uh, I had put it together. But yeah, that was his, that was his way of saying thank you.
1: Is that one of the proudest days of your life? It
0: stands out as still one of the most important days of my life, simply because of what it meant to me at the time. To have successfully put that together, it came off to, you know, to, to kind of get that nod of recognition from David. Um, yeah, when, when I'd worked on getting to that point um, of wanting to reach out to him for, for probably close to a year. Um, so when I got the interview, I was very excited and thought that was great and actually being able to have the press conference happen. So yeah, you know, there are things in your life when just the enthusiasm you have for something makes it important and you just wish you could replicate that <laughs> more more times in, in your life. But there were very few moments that, that equal that in terms of the joy I had in my heart that, that, that had come off. I, th- I think, again, believe it or not, being able to, um, a lot of satisfaction being able to sit and talk to Sean about it. I said goodbye to Sean and he just gave me this huge bear hug was a one was again, a really wonderful, a really wonderful feeling because I I told him all about what we had done for David and I tried to do and everything. he He knew about some of it. Um, and um, before he left, when I, when I said goodbye, we were all sitting in the, the suite up at the Plaza Hotel, and I had to take off, and he just stood up and gave me a big bear hug. A
1: lovely person, very lovely person. How do you remember David?
0: Um, I remember David as fragile. I remember David as a bit... Defensive in terms of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not defensive, but, and not suspicious, but very concerned. He didn't like crowds, big crowds per se. He but he, 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 was a bit um, concerned about people approaching him all the time, but what their motives might be. This was something he was not used to. Um, as none of us would be used to. Um, So I think that he was happiest when he was on on stage. I think in other situations when he was surrounded by crowds or when he was approached by strangers, I, I think he had a bit more apprehension. I think he was a little anxious sometimes. It all happened so fast for David and on such an unexpected scale. And I think, He was very um, alone in this whirlwind, which is a tough place to be. You know, the Beatles always said they, when they were going through it, they had each other to keep each other's head, you know, out of the clouds and and to bring everything back into perspective and back to reality. Elvis less so, he had some friends around him. David had some friends around him. But at the end of the day, it's pretty pretty shallow. Um, But I remember him as being... Um, very sweet, very polite, um, very tiny, very fragile. Um, and that's how I'll always think of that's how I'll always think of him. Beautiful eyes. Julian Roxon, the great the late great music critic called him Emerald. Everyone fell in love with him. I mean we can all understand that.
1: And you can sit here now and smile when we remember him because that's the David we want to keep in our hearts.
0: That's the David you want to keep in your hearts. There was there was no more beautiful face and smile. And um, I think for the young girls it was non-threatening to a certain extent. And what a lovely person to have your first crush on. Who who actually who had some substance and the thing about David that you never got from the other people who he shared the covers of the teen magazines with, whether it was Bobby Sherman or Donny Osmond, you know, you always had the sense there was some substance to David. you, you always projected that there was more to him, that there was, there was substance there. And I think that just came through with a look. I think it came through with his voice. He had a more mature, wonderful voice than some of the others, um, which, again was magnetic and, and, and drew you in. It was a voice that you paid attention to, no matter what he was singing. And uh, I, I think if you, you're you watching a silly show like The Partridge Family, what makes you kind of stop and take notice again is when David starts to sing. You know, I watched the program for the songs, And it's interesting because the music career was not something he considered pursuing because he wasn't a a great instrumentalist, although he could definitely sing. Um, He wanted to act. And I think one of the frustrations in the career was he never had the acting career he wanted. Um, And it kind of reminds me, and I don't know why that didn't happen, and it kind of reminds me of Elvis, who was just the opposite. He he was a musician who wanted an, also wanted an acting career. And he wanted a serious acting career. And he started off having one until Colonel Parker said, no, you have to start singing in the movies. And once he started doing that, the movies became very lightweight. And he was never able again to be taken as a serious actor. And again, that was the direction he allowed his manager to take him in. And David Had the Partridge family not happened, and you can write an incredible alternative history on David's life, if he never did the Partridge family, um, with his voice, he could have had a wonderful Broadway career. Um, And, you know, Sean has this incredible, you know, David's attorney, Sean has this incredible baritone voice um, that he could have also done, but he he was more interested in writing and being behind the scenes. Once his teen career was over, um, Sean wanted to be behind the cameras, basically writing and producing. Um, But he also has an extraordinary voice.
1: What do you think David's legacy should be?
0: David's legacy will be the love that his fans have for him and still carry for him. I've never seen anything like it. Just sitting here talking with you and having been contacted by our mutual friend Barbara who reached out for me and had saved all of these things from those years that I in the many moves that I've made, um, had lost and she had them all. And what a joy that she, she had the magazine, she had the photograph, she had things that I had written that I look at and I, I'm going, damn, this is good. <laughs> it shows you when you have someone inspiring to you, for you. So that's, that has been wonderful. And, and, and to be talking to to her and be talking to you. And, looking at the the cherished book a wonderful book you put together and seeing all those other you know wonderful women who and and guys who who share their stories very magical time when there wasn't a lot of you know good things going on in the world Mm -hmm. that you you know that new generation just coming of age was able to find something to love the way they loved david and that for the most part He never gave us any cause to be embarrassed or to be ashamed. He, he, he conducted himself through his career publicly. Um, I think in a, in a way that, that he could be proud of and we could all be proud of. He had his private demons, but you see when he was with fans, how happy he was, Mm. uh, how he responded well to fans. I remember backstage at the Garden State Arts Center, the room was just filled with gifts um, that were brought back to him, that fans wanted to get to him. And they were all brought back. And we were going through some of them and they, they were all going to be taken over to a children's hospital um, for all of that. But he, he went through it, he looked, at, he looked at a lot of it, just you know, everything from jewelry to posters to, to wonderful letters um, from fans. And if, again, if you look at the interviews, going way back, and I went through a lot of David's interviews from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and, and everyone talks about how much the love from the fans meant. I mean, he was aware of it. He knew how much. He said, that was the most important thing to me, is, you know, that I was able to bring some happiness, and and they gave me all this love. And there will be a long time before we see his like again. We could only let him know we cared, and I think he knew that. Everything else was going to be up up to him.
1: Everyone will resonate with those sentiments. I
0: hope so. And I love the pod I love the podcast. So I keep listening to them and it's it's just been a joy discovering this.
1: Well it's been a joy speaking with you tonight.
0: Thank you, Louise,
1: likewise. We will continue through our friendships to tell the world yes, he was a good guy. Yeah. I just want to thank you for your continued support of the David Cassidy Connections podcast. We have charted in every country in the world, and that is just amazing. You are amazing. We have been number one in New Zealand. We've been in the top 10 in the United States. We've been in the top four in the United Kingdom. It's just thrilling. Thank you so much. And you can now find us on Facebook. I will see you next week. Bye bye.